0: from the ARK Insider. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My counterpart, Tara O'Connor, the managing director of ARK, the pan-African risk consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, gives us a European perspective from where she joins us in France. The ARK Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work, and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news as well as ongoing topics of interest. Tara, happy new year. Happy new year, Karen. Good to connect with you again. Very good to chat and
1: um, and looking forward to our next batch of 20 podcasts.
0: Exactly. Well, it started off, didn't it, as a COVID lockdown project, didn't it? And who would have imagined that we would be where we are today? Uh, I know like so many others, we've both lost friends and colleagues along the way. But I guess vaccine permitting, some form of normality will resume. Are you ready for a podcasting year ahead? I'm definitely ready for a podcasting year ahead. And, and yes, I think
1: we have both lost people and to this dreadful disease. And I think it calls for a bit of sombre reflection and looking at the future with, um, with hope, but also cautiously.
0: It's been very humbling, hasn't it? And the world is a very small place on the one hand, but it also feels absolutely massive if you can't be with your family. Well, especially when you've got a pandemic like this, um,
1: it the world suddenly feels very vast, and the task of vaccinating um, um, so many people is, you know, while it's got off to a very good start in rich Western countries. Um, It just shows the enormous gap between uh, the enormous inequity between rich and poor countries again. And I think that is going to be very much a much more focused debate um, in the year ahead. And and hopefully we will, you know, you and I will keep a focus on that debate as we go forward.
0: Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But We've got a fascinating guest on the podcast as well, an American citizen who runs the African arm of the US law firm Covingtons. It specialises in anti-corruption cases. As we've got an American on our show, we're going to leave any discussion of current events in the US until a little later on in the podcast, because, of course, as we record this, momentous things happening in Washington, D.C. First then, though, let's take a look at what's been happening in the news since our last podcast. The new U.S. President's first hours in office, Joe Biden, signs a series of orders reversing some of Donald
2: Trump's key policies. The World Health Organization says the world is on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure if rich countries hog COVID-19 vaccine doses while the poorest suffer. Foreign Affairs Minister Sibusiso Moyo
1: has passed away after contracting COVID-19 the senior government official had tested positive for the viral infection two days ago. He died in hospital this morning. Well,
0: in a tragic turn of events, shortly after trying to save minister in the presidency, Jackson was life, Dr. Richard Mononyani died in a helicopter crash. Two doctors, a nurse, paramedic, and a pilot also died when an 8K medical emergency chopper crashed in Bergville in KwaZulu-Natal yesterday.
1: The leading critic of the Kremlin, Alexei Navalny, has been detained by police after returning to Moscow for the first time since being poisoned with a nerve agent in an attack he blames on the Russian authorities.
0: A lot happening internationally, Tara. And as I said, we'll talk a little bit about the US election a little later on as we have an American guest. But the row over access to COVID vaccines is really very interesting. We heard the strong words there of condemnation by the World Health Organization's chief, talking about the world being on the brink of catastrophic failure if it allows the rich north to hog supplies of COVID vaccine. Now, we understand that Africa aims to have about 60% of its 1.3 billion people vaccinated over the next two to three years. That's pretty ambitious. But interestingly, some NGOs have flagged up concerns about African countries getting into further debt. And of course, they do have a point, don't they? I mean, countries wishing to use the export financing facility of the African Union will have to pay about 15% of the cost up front uh, and then they'll pay back over the next five to seven years. But the big question is how are they going to get the funds to be able to pay for such vast numbers of vaccines? some of which will fall outside that COVAX agreement.
1: Yes, enormously problematic when we're talking about um, firms that um, are going to be charging between 3 and $10 per vaccine, depending on whether countries are ranked as middle-income countries. And so there's going to be a fresh race to recategorise countries as low in- low-income countries in order to be able to for them to be able to access uh, financing for this vaccine. I mean, I think it's very ironic that South Africa is manufacturing masses of amounts of vaccine. It has been a massive contributor to the science of the disease and yet is having to fall behind. Uh, in the in the queue for the vaccine itself, and lot, don't forget, lots of uh, lots of these vaccines were actually tested in Africa.
0: I think we should be getting a guest from Big Pharma on in the coming weeks. I think we should definitely be aiming for that for sure. Well, Tara, we've also had the Ugandan elections in recent days. Ueri Museveni securing a sixth term in office to his challenger Bobby Wine. He secured though about thirty percent of the vote, didn't he? And certainly had a very uh, lively campaign. The outcome perhaps not surprising and much has been made about the governing party's tactics, including shutting down the internet. But do you think it's quite a significant shift, Tara, that Bobby Wine managed to get? 30-odd percent of the vote is nothing to be sniffed at.
1: He's earned his position as the leading opponent to Museveni now and the results have still got to be finalised and we've got to see yet what the ruling party did in terms of parliamentary seats, which will be another indication of uh, of how well Bobby Wine has done.
0: Yeah, and he'll still be under the age of 45. So, assuming Bobby Wine runs again, he'll still be a a youthful candidate in any any future election. You know, you talked about the 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 shutdown and the social media campaign that was run. And the shutdowns the the effect of the shutdown on the Ugandan economy is really interesting and it's something that's been really quite underreported. Um obviously not just the impact on the freedom of speech, but the ability to actually conduct business in Uganda. So according to the Internet Freedom Monitor netbox, the blackout that we saw, so remember the Ugandan authorities on the eve of election shut down the internet, um, it could have cost the Ugandan economy an estimated 9 million US dollars. Of course, mobile money and mobile business is such a big Growth area in East Africa. We've talked about it in so many of our podcasts. It's been one of the unintended consequences, if you like, uh, with the uh, with the ruling party making this decision to just shut the shut the internet down wholesale.
1: Again, it's part of that generation divide. Uh, you, so many of the startups now across Africa are internet based. So whenever um, these uh, rather autocratic leaning governments do that they do so much damage to their own revenue collection for the uh, revenue collection uh, it you know it serves a short-term purpose but it also creates great economic and commercial instability so it really is cutting off your nose to spite your
0: face in a way or cutting off your nose to spite your Facebook
1: <laughs> That was a good one that's
0: good let's move on no more jokes.
1: Jokes are very much allowed. Well, anyway, well, that sort of brings me on to my favourite country uh, of uh, historically... Fa- oh, I shouldn't really have a favourite, but I do have a, have a particular favourite in Ghana. And actually, Ghana has had another yet another successful election. The incumbent has actually returned and has been sworn in as, as president. But what what actually happened was that the election was incredibly close, with both main parties winning 137 seats, resulting in a hung parliament. And now, while I don't approve of this, it did result in a punch-up in parliament when the, uh, the National Assembly voted in an opposition candidate as speaker, which then resulted in some chaotic scenes which are not usual in Ghana. But nevertheless, order has been restored. But I do think that the hung parliament will mean that policy development and actually legislation will be very difficult.
0: You're listening to The Ark Insider, the africa Focus podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest on today's podcast is an American lawyer, but with an African focus. Ben Haley from the American law firm Covingtons leads their African operation out of South Africa, representing not only American firms, but also African corporates in the field of corporate governance, i.e. anti-corruption efforts. Ben Haley, welcome to The Arc Insider.
2: Thank you, Karen. And thank you, Tara. I'm really delighted to be here with you today.
0: Well, Ben, I think the first thing we have to ask you as an American, and because of when we're recording this... How do you feel, not politically, but emotionally, if you like, about the circumstances in which the new US president's been sworn in? You know, we've seen the additional security restrictions, the absences in the guest list. I was there last time around. It had a very, very different feel to it. What does it evoke in you?
2: Well, it, it's a it's an interesting thing to be away from home during um, such a momentous uh, occasion in our in our history, and you know having the events of January sixth unfold and watching it from you know across the the world um, was was quite an experience, and I think. We're. I'm certainly hopeful, filled with hope about you know the new administration. I'm. I'm. I'm hopeful that we can um, have an inauguration that is um, maybe a, an event that will help us turn the page. But more than anything, that we can get by this without um, further violence in in D.C. It's simply something scary to watch. And and you know, with the perspective of somebody who's lived and worked in Johannesburg for a few years, and hearing from. Uh, people in South Africa commenting on the lack of peaceful transfer of power in the United States is. Um, something I didn't expect when I when I moved over here. Exactly. And I was and oh,
0: calling Kettle Black. Exa- yeah.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I and I, I joke, but it's sort of, you know, in our in our jokes there's a sort of emotional layer to this is that I sort of say to people all the time, um, you know, I feel safer in, in South Africa than I do than I would in the United States right now. And that's that's you know, I, 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 I think there's something to that.
1: I was particularly moved on the eve of uh, of inauguration day by the memorial service, memorialising the 400,000 people who've lost their lives to COVID. Um, and in amongst all of the divisiveness of the last uh, while, you know, the last couple of months, uh, I think we've sort of lost a bit of humanity. And I thought part of that turning of the page was actually perhaps to bring back some of that humanity that has been lost.
2: I couldn't agree with that more. I think, you know, Biden is somebody who has experienced, you know, a lot of personal loss in his own life. And I think that that ability to connect with people at a time like this who are, you know, suffering economically, suffering with loved ones who've, um, you know, who've, who've been sick or have, have <clears throat> who've, who've passed from, from COVID is, um, is such a poignant sort of, you know, role for him to to play, I think is sort of is, is a good sort of modeling lesson for people, you know, in the United States generally. I think, look, you know, we we've talked in our own family about ensuring that we keep contact with people who have different political views in my own family or friends, because it's this sort of polarization can be so dangerous. I, I tell my colleagues and we talk about this as a family is that it's really valuable for us to drive from Washington, D.C. to. Michigan, where we have family, because you drive through communities that have, it, it, it have, have experienced what Trump called the, you know, American carnage, um, in ways that we don't see. Every day if we're in Washington DC and I think it's really important for 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 people to find ways to sort of connect with people with different experiences in the United States It's a really good lesson and I think that that's something that he's done that, that Biden and, and and Harris have done successfully and I think that hopefully there's a lesson from that for all of Absolutely. us so um, you know yeah. we'll see
0: but anyway now to an American in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, we're a bit confused. Right. We're a bit confused. What's an American law firm doing in Africa?
2: Well, it, it's a it's a long story. So we've Covington has has. Um long had, you know, an international client base. And, um, you know, when I came to the firm, um, we did not have an office in Johannesburg. We did not have an office in China. We had an office in London. We had a small office in Brussels. Um, you know, we've grown quite a bit over um, <clears throat> over over that period. We saw that our, our client base um, either was going into Africa or needed to be in Africa because it, it represented, you know, huge growth opportunities. We saw um, massive infrastructure need, you know, massive unbanked population. And with that, you know, is is an opportunity for um, professional advisors like ours. And we have followed somewhat of a different model, as some of you may know, than the typical law firm in that we've really made investments and focused sort of the intersection of law and policy.
1: It's quite a competitive field out there. I mean, you've come into a market where we've seen an awful lot of South African uh, firms uh, moving across borders, uh, forming partnerships with uh, Kenyan firms, with Nigerian firms. So it's a very competitive space nowadays, is it?
2: It absolutely is. And I think, look, um, as we came into the market, we were very um, thoughtful about our relationships with local firms because we, um, we, we're we never going to have or I, I would think we're not we're not going to have an office in you know, five to six countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, at least as we look at our um, our plan now. Um, South Africa made sense. I mean, Joburg is a fantastic place to you know have a base of operations for a professional services firm you know, look, we, we've long had deep relationships with a number of African firms um, where we don't necessarily compete, right? Because we're um, assisting clients with that are, that are working on cross-border issues that are focused on U.S. and U.K. law. Now, as we've grown and as we've made more of an investment here, we obviously can service our um, our local client base in Africa better. And we have a group of South African lawyers who can do that. But we don't try to compete with the, the likes of of the the largest South African firms in in all areas, and we and we have a great working relationship with a number of them.
0: Are your clients internationals or African corporates or a, a mixture of the two? A mixture
2: a mixture of the two, and I think it it, it sort of depends on what practice um, you're you're talking about. Probably on the infrastructure practice, it, it may be a little bit more locally based. Um, in terms of my practice, the bread and butter, I think, would be uh, multinationals uh, who are, and, and they could be African multinationals, but of which there are, you know, a number, and I think we all need to remember that. Um, that that, but but typically, say U.S. U.K. companies who have um, operations here through subsidiaries, and here I mean Sub-Saharan Africa, not just South, uh, not just South Africa, and 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 because they're. Either U.S. listed or a U.S. company or their U.K. company, uh, they have exposures or potential exposures under laws like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or the or the U.K. Bribery Act. So it's a it's really a mix.
1: I think our listeners would be very interested to note that actually. Is that about the African companies? That because African companies are now going global, and I think that's the trend. What sort of firms are you seeing, um, and the direction of travel of these firms?
2: There's a number of South African multinationals that are operating throughout the continent and, and beyond. I mean, I think of, um, I think of MTN, right? And MTN has operations throughout Sub-Saharan Africa and, and into the Middle East. I think of Standard Bank, which, um, you know, Standard Bank. I, I was, I was interested to learn that Standard Bank has branches in Brazil. And, you know, those are two. SASL is another. SASL obviously has operations in Europe. Um, they have a major project, um, which I think they just um, sold a, a piece of in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, they have operations in China. And and, and so um, I, I believe, you know, SAPI, the, the pulp and paper company, I believe has operations in the United States as well as uh, maybe Latin America as well. So look, um, you know a number of these, uh, you know, corporates, and I'm focused on the South African corporates here. They they tr- they do travel quite well um, throughout the continent, but also in other you know emerging markets. I think that some of the um, business challenges that our clients here face. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa are not so dissimilar to what they're going to face in a place like Brazil. And so uh, being able to operate in, across those emerging markets is something that, uh, that they see benefits in, 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 um, in Latin America, for example.
0: And Ben, your firm focuses on governance, um, anti-corruption efforts, to put it bluntly. Um, it's obviously a very sensitive issue on the African continent. But given the events of the past few years in the United States, Hasn't America lost the moral high ground when it comes to fighting corruption in Africa? Because, of course, you know, I remember when Obama was over visiting, you know, Kenya and South Africa, you know, his mantra was an anti-corruption mantra. But, you know, so much has happened since then. Uh, it's kind of hard to wave the finger.
2: Well, look, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember being in Nigeria shortly after, you know, President Trump was elected and, and, and talking about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, in a company that that with, with, you know, a local team that, that, you know, is first and foremost a Nigerian company, and they may have um, a subsidiary structure or a parent that you know has links to the US but they don't think of themselves first and foremost as a US company so coming in for me coming in and waving the foreign corrupt practices act around in their face to to guys who've never been in the United States and don't feel particularly connected is not a great look for for an anti-corruption lawyer and you need to find you need to find other ways to make that that message relevant frankly I look at it as an opportunity because if I can talk to my colleagues in South Africa or in Nigeria or in East Africa and say, we have common ground because we both have corruption issues in our government and come down off the sort of, you know, U- U.S. high and mighty perch that I think sometimes people at least have the impression that we we start from. Um, to me, I, I would and I would I would say I, I don't I don't come at it from a place of moral high ground. I come at it from a place of just, you know, I think people basically understand ethical principles and they basically understand that corruption is, in, in Africa in particular, they see corruption as something that, um, you know, causes increased poverty, that decreases, you know, reliance on, that, that, that sort of decreases the ability to rely on the government that that um, makes the rule of law less reliable, that contributes to unstable democracies and things like that.
0: It's so interesting on the radio, just uh, past few days, actually, in South Africa, there was much debate about sort of the money that's been stolen in state capture, grand corruption, how that could be spent for vaccines. And I think one of the Legacies of COVID might be to also elevate that whole issue about you know the opportunity cost of money that gets taken away from the state that could be spent on things that are so badly needed.
2: Well, there's there's a ton. Uh, what I've seen over time is some of the most effective ways that we can train employees on the importance of anti-corruption efforts and 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 the role that corporates play there is to directly connect bribery and corruption with social ills. So if you say, if you can say, and I've seen really effective um, training programs on this that say corruption kills because, for example, you know, someone is building a bridge and the, the, you know, inspector for engineering is bribed and the bridge fails or, you know, corruption steals, corruption means that kids don't get school books. And I think connecting those dots is really, really important to getting people on your side on these issues.
1: We do have to... As corporate advisors um, be very strict about corporate governance and rules that people apply to. Uh, you know, because of the nature now of the extra extraterritorial nature of all of the um, of the of the the laws, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, UK Bribery Act, which is in, is much more much stricter indeed than the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. As an advisor's point of view. We're not talking to companies for now we're talking to them for ten years time um, wouldn't
2: you say if under under both US and UK law if you have um, a transaction in Africa that involves um, uh, you know a, a us element in the sense that say, you know, there's a meeting that occurs in the U.S., even if all the players are from outside the U.S., and a corrupt scheme is hatched at, you know, a hotel in Miami, say, then that can give rise to U.S. jurisdiction if there is a Dollar transfer. If uh, you know, um, I always sort of often joke that corrupt officials like to be paid in stable currency, and that creates jurisdiction in places like the U.S. Because if you have, it, it, it's it's there are lots of potential jurisdictional hooks, and certainly if you're if you're a U.S. incorporated company or a U.S. person um, that's involved in a bribery scheme, and same with a U.K. person, then you may have um, potential exposure. The second piece is that. I think that the imperative to sort of focus on integrity and ethics issues in business is broader than just, you know, avoiding getting caught by international enforcement authorities. It's more about, you know, sustainability. It's more about doing business in a way that um, will attract, you know, quality commercial partners and having commercial partners who care about whether you're acting with integrity. I say it's just good business.
0: You know, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, we know it goes on here. We know it goes on across the world. We've all worked in Africa extensively where, you know, there may be quite a lot of list checking and and box ticking by companies that's required for them to be compliant with the legislation. Um, And, you know, as you say, there's lots of good trainings that are going on, and that's not to undermine those at all. But at the end of the day, um, if corporates want to do business and give a gift or offer hospitality, because that's the way things often get done culturally in Africa, they will. So how does the law actually define
2: corruption? It's about the use of benefits and the provision of benefits to people in power to improperly influence their decision making. Right. And so um, I think that people well understand that giving you know, lavish benefits to government officials to... Um, you know, make them more inclined to give you the things that you need in your business. I think people understand that that's corrupt. And the question is.
0: And if I take you out for dinner before we, you know, do a business deal, is that corrupt? I,
2: look, I think I think it's going to come down to the specific facts and circumstances of of that. If it's a if it's a a, a meal where, you know, you and I are having a, a, a reasonable, you know, a reasonably priced Dinner, um, and it's not something that ends up with you know twelve bottles of expensive wine and you know something, um, some some other entertainment afterwards. I think it's you know you can look at the 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 nature of the expenditures. You can look at the circumstances of whether or not there was a specific uh, a specific decision under review by you know a government official. And I and I, I I tend to try to peel away at those cultural differences and say like look we we can all understand sort of basic things one. One is, am I seeking to influence this official in a way on a specific type of decision by providing some sort of benefit? And the other piece, which I think is the sort of universal sort of litmus test for corruption, is would the government official and would the person giving the benefit be happy and be okay? If it was all transparent, you know, as external advisors, you know, we we often depend on transparency based mitigation steps to help our clients navigate some you know, some difficult issues. And it's it's a basic concept that I think everybody can understand. Um, and so, you know, whether it be a, a, a shareholding um, where someone comes in and you're asking, well, who's the actual ultimate beneficial owner? And is, you know, Karen really holding shares for someone else? And if, if so, why can't we know who the ultimate beneficial owner is? Is someone um, afraid of disclosing that? Or whether it be, you know, karen's example of a of a nice steak dinner if that's going to get is the question is is that going to be known to um people within the within the government i think those questions are basic ones and easy for everyone to ask
0: i guess sometimes in this part of the world i mean it's such a good point you made but sometimes in this part of the world there is this reverence for leadership or reverence for 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 age and experience and sometimes the people will say yeah the big guy deserves to have the you know the steak dinner and the 12 bottles of wine
2: it's an area of certainly of of you know, cultural sensitivity that I think you have to, as an anti-corruption advisor, you have to be sort of mindful of and understanding as you try to give sort of practical advice. If you look at um, corruption scandals in Africa, you know, the, the sort of history of um, liberation parties that have, you know, trended into corruption is sort of built on that mantra, if you will. Um, and I think you're getting into a place where, um, when I talk to younger people in Africa, they're not benefiting from that. And, um, and, I think, and, and, and I think, and so I think that the notion that, you know, um, senior people who've been through, you know, struggles, you know, deserve to sort of, you know, um, eat first, if you will. I think that that's, that's, um, that's an old ideology that, you know, is not, does not cut it with um, 20 to 30 year olds in South Africa who don't have jobs. And, and, and I think that there's hope in that to yeah. me. I think
1: that's absolutely true. And I think, Karen, you and I remember when in Kenya, when President Kibaki first came into power, you know, the first thing that started to happen was civil society making people's arrests of, uh, of police officers who were demanding for demanding mm-hmm. bribes.
0: One of the things that people have observed as well is in places like Kenya, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And unfortunately, there is among the younger generation as well, obviously not just in Kenya, but in a number of countries, there is this resignation. Gosh, well, it's always going to be like this. So, you know, you'd be a fool not to try and take, you know, something small.
2: Yeah. No, look, I think that that's one of the hardest sort of... um That's one of the hardest issues to deal with. And it's also the one that, as a U.S. anti-corruption advisor, I understand the least. You know, I, I come from working at a law firm in Washington, D.C., where you know, we don't have to go through a security checkpoint to walk in the, the front door. Um, I don't have a risk of getting kidnapped on my way home from, from work. I don't have, you know, family that are um, in poverty and, and have to, you know, support a, a large group of um, extended family. And I think that, you know, if you, if you step back and you begin to think about um, the, the, the challenges that your clients have to face on the ground and begin to think about what is going to motivate them, there's a basic part of that that is um, job security. In some places, it's very easy to say you can report, you know, things that your uh, senior does, somebody, you know, your supervisor does without fear of retribution. You say that to, you know, many employees um, in Africa, that the sort of notion of blowing the whistle on a senior person, maybe a senior male person, maybe a young woman blowing the whistle on a senior male person. It's like, It's just you have to understand the challenges that someone will face there because of concerns over personal safety, because of concerns over, um, you know, losing their job and things like that. And if you don't put yourself in their shoes, you're not going to be a very good advisor.
0: That's so interesting. Ben, it's been great to talk to you. Really interesting.
2: Well, it's been it's been enjoyable. I I really um, I've really had fun here. So I'm happy to do it again. And um, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs)
0: been listening to the ark insider with me karen allen and tara o'connor thank you for joining us if you're interested tara's team at ark produces a daily chronology of events as well as reports and briefings about the region you can sign up for these at info at Africa Risk consulting that's all one word dot com and if you enjoyed this podcast please do let us know you can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends bye for now